Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal Aeronautical Society's headquarters here at Hamilton Place. Great pleasure to see so many of you here this evening. My name is Pat Norris. I'm the chairman of the Space Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Now, tonight, uh, as you can see from the screen behind me, we are delighted and privileged to have with us Dr. David Southwood from the European Space Agency, and he's going to tell us about... Herschel and Planck, uh, and um, Dr. Southwood is uh, well known to many of you, professor at Imperial College and now director of space and uh, science and robotic exploration at the European Space Agency, so a long and distinguished career in science and in uh, space activities. So I'm going to ask David to talk to us, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Pat. It's a, it's a great pleasure to speak here in uh, in London, back in uh, in my home country, so to speak. Uh, I have to say, I've got to correct the uh, the previous slide that was up. Uh, I am going to launch the largest space telescope into space. But I have to say, there would be plenty of people pretty upset on the ground if I launched the largest telescope <laughs> into space. I mean, uh, you know, I, I must say I'm a space person myself, and I value space. I actually genuinely feel space astronomy has massively changed our understanding of the universe we live in. Uh, it's um, one... one one of the arguments for astronomy is to imagine human beings living on a planet which was continuously cloud-covered, something we in the United Kingdom can well uh, comprehend. But it is fascinating to try and think what we would know about physics and the physical world if we had lived continuously in a cloud-covered world. I mean, it's a, just do it as a thought experiment. And to be perfectly frank, when you look at the size of the windows in electromagnetic in the electromagnetic spectrum, you realize that once we got into space, we were going to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. And somehow it's, you know, the, the changes take place every few years, and so the revolution never seems to have happened. But just cast your mind back, those of you interested in astronomy, or indeed in, in our understanding of our own globe, 50 years, and you see I can rest my case. So, that said, I'm very much in favor of launching telescopes into space, and the one I'm going to launch in a, in a, few week, a couple of weeks' time is, I assure you, the largest space telescope ever launched. And probably there will be no bigger for a very simple reason. It's the size of the fairing on uh, a typical large rocket. And Ariane 5 is a typical large rocket. And that's what uh, will leave me in the history books. 
it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm praying there are no advances, major advances in more uh, larger diameter rockets. Okay, so let's see. Okay, it's kind of nice. Uh, it's actually terribly bad for me uh, personally uh, in terms of my management problems to be launching Herschel Planck this year rather than last year. Um, I think it was always in the cards it would be this, this year. But in fact, it is a happy circumstance in one regard. It is the year of the International Year of Astronomy. I hope even those of you who are not astronomers have noticed this event going on. It will go on all year. There have been a variety of activities uh, going on, uh, and ESA is taking its part in that. And one of the things that's really great is we in Europe just happen to be putting up the two major space observ astronomical observatories of the year and in some sense of about a decade. I mean, that's the length of time I think these will be masters of the universe, if that's the right, masters of the infrared and longer wavelength universe. Okay, there are pictures of them there, and you're going to see more of them. I think they're beautiful. I, just to say, uh, ESA is a, a, um, has a pretty healthy space science program now. Um, it's giving us our own problems. We have a lot of missions in operations at the moment, going back as long ago as, as Hubble and uh, Ulysses, which is the spacecraft that more or less refuses to die. We've declared its death several times, and it doesn't seem to hear us. Uh, it's still phoning home. And actually, I think we're very glad about that because the sun has decided suddenly to put Ulysses back on the front page because the information on the solar wind, coupled with the strange behavior of the sun in the last few months, is very, very significant, so you can take it. We will let it go on phoning home. I won't take you through the others. You'll see it's a fair mix of missions uh, from high-energy astrophysics, X-rays and gamma rays, looking at the most extreme parts of the uh, universe, where large amounts of energy are released and, uh, so to speak, change hands through to, more or less, very close to home, with SOHO and Cluster looking at how our sun interacts with the planet Earth. And then, of course, the last few years have really seen Europe arriving as a serious explorer of the solar system, something that at the beginning of my career, I was told Europe doesn't do planets. Now, I thought that was nuts, I still think it's nuts. And I'm happy to say, in a small way, we are definitely changing that. So Mars Express and Venus Express, I'm very proud of. And of course, Rosetta um, is on its way to Comet Chermov-Gerasimenko and will arrive there in 2014. We've got a lot of international cooperations, uh, those are different flags of nations we cooperate with and the missions we cooperate on, Chandrayaan with India, Corot with France, which still has its own 
space program, uh, Double Star with China, Hinode Akiri with Japan. And one of the major changes in the future is the relationship between ESA or Europe and Japan vis-a-vis the United States. It's becoming more of a uh, tripartite activity. And there, filling a very large gap, come Herschel and Planck. Herschel and Planck, in very great contrast to Integral and Newton, the two missions that look at X-rays and gamma rays, the two observatories that look at X-rays and gamma rays that are unique, uh, and uh, I think uh, on the world stage, Herschel, a little bit of linkage with Hubble. Uh, Hubble is invisible, a little bit of infrared and ultraviolet. Herschel and Planck really do move into a different territory. It's a territory we've been in before. ISO was a European first, uh, the first infrared space observatory at all, was uh, launched by ESA in 1995, followed by uh, Spitzer, an American program, and now we move to the next generation. I think it's fair to say ISO and Spitzer were one generation. We now move to the next with Herschel and Planck. Planck, on the other hand, follows up two previous American missions. Um, I'll tell you more. Why Herschel and Planck? I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know, Debenham and Freebody or Burgess and McLean. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it must be terrible for, I don't know what Herschel, I don't know what Planck thought of Herschel, but somehow now they're completely tied together, just, uh, just like Burgess and McLean or, uh, French and Saunders. Whatever. Choose your, choose your favorite coupling. Why Herschel and Planck? And I think in this environment of the Royal Aerospace Society, it's important to answer that question. It's nothing to do with astronomy. They weren't always known us. Herschel was originally called FIRST, the Far Infrared Space Telescope, and it entered the ESA program in 1986, I think, as the third cornerstone. In other words, the first should be third. In fact, it's rather turned out the first should be last because there were four cornerstones and it is definitely the last of the cornerstones. Rosetta kind of overtook uh, first. Herschel, I think, is a much nicer name than first. Um, I'll come to the origin of the name. And then Planck, was originally two missions, rather typical for the way we do things in Europe. Uh, we never let our aspiration tie us down to reality, and we took two, two progr- programs that were proposed to us as the second medium mission. They were called Cobras and Samba. Uh, and I must say, I prefer Planck to either of those names. And they entered the program in 1992. I have to say, of personal feelings about this, is that that was actually when I was chairman of the committee, the Space Science Advisory Committee of ESA, uh, for the first time. And one of the first things I was involved in was selection of those. Um, two missions. 
one program. Herschel's a space observatory to look at star galaxy formation and unexplored wavelengths. Planck is a survey mission, mission measuring the cosmic microwave background, a relic of the Big Bang. In fact, it's all we really know of the Big Bang. It's what told us the Big Bang was there. I'll say more about what that means in a minute. Two spacecraft, they're different. One is a three-axis stabilized pointing satellite, as you need for an astronomical observatory. And the other one is doing a survey, and you will perhaps not be surprised to hear that that one slowly rotates. Uh, that's part of its scanning of the entire sky. Uh, of course, uh, there are two nightmares from the engineering point of view, and uh, they have completely done... I, say this to friends, and I assume you're mainly friends. I can see one or two people I've never been sure about sitting over there, but <laughs> uh, if they would kindly close their ears. Really, uh, they have completely dominated my period as director at ESA, and I always knew that would be so. Each year since the first year that I was director, they've consumed the largest fraction of the budget, and I hope that's going to cease this year. Um, the, uh, they're cryogenic, and so they were always going to be a nightmare. It's really hard building refrigerators you can't kick. And, uh, it's, uh, and one of the nasty things about them is there is fuel in them that eventually runs out. But it's also the demands that are placed on them. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, have refrigerators, and your demands on them are minor compared to the demands put on these. To get down to 0.3 degrees above absolute zero, or in the case of Planck, 0.1 Kelvin, which is the absolute scale of temperature. Not a trivial thing. And it's done in stages, and it's done first with as much passive cooling as possible, and then by series of active cooling systems. Um, one orbit type. These are also radically changing, actually, the way we do things in ESA. Astronomy in ESA will not be the same after these spacecraft, because they are pioneers for us as deep space astronomical observatories. That radically changes the nature of our demands on the ground system. It means we need a deep space network, not just to send things to grub around on the surface of Mars for living beings or whatever. We need it also for astronomy from now on. We need 35 meter. Now, this is a radical change. It's something, it's a big challenge politically in Europe to restructure our ground system in recognition of this. It's not trivial. Uh, no longer will we need the 15-meter system, the S-Track system that most of you, many of you will know and love. It's a big, big change because after this, deep space is where ast astronomical missions are going to go, the vast majority. The ones that follow Gaia, Lisa, etc., all deep space missions. It's a radical change that's happened without people really noticing. James Webb. Also, a deep space telescope somewhere in an orbit following the Earth around the sun. 
somewhere beyond the orbit of the moon, the L2 point is the typical astronomical space observatory position from now on. So they both have the same orbit, so now we're coming to what's one about them, and the last two con slides contrasted them. One launcher, and I must say, you guys think launchers are reliable. In my nightmares, they're never reliable. Uh, this is, uh, there's nothing one can do. It's a single point failure. We don't build spare spacecraft. And we cannot ensure uh, the level of cost of these things. You can ensure small things, but you can't. It doesn't even make sense. So May the 14th is going to be a quite uh, exciting day for me and for my colleagues. And here is the major region that Herschel and Planck are thought in now in one word, one ESA project team, one industrial architect, one development concept. In fact, you can see the two spacecraft in their stacking um, position here. And uh, the next slide takes you back to a bit of history and reminds you that when we started this program about eight years, nine years, ten years ago, ten years ago, really, we were deep in the cheaper, better, faster era. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. Um, these, the phrase, of course, uh, is uh, wonderful. And, of course, the thing was you could have two, but not three. I mean, you can choose any two out of those, but not three. And it's now, uh, I think it's still a worthy ideal. I'm not against it. I uh, notice that in the United States now, it's almost used as a, uh, in a totally pejorative manner, which I think is foolish. Um, somehow, you should really concentrate on which of the two out of the three you want and then think about it. This was crazy. We were starting the biggest astronomical program that the agency will ever do, in fact, because I, you're going to find out I don't think it was such a great idea to have such a big program. Um, but it was at the height of the cheaper, faster, better, and people don't think about it, but Europe did actually respond to that in some very imaginative ways. Newton and integral I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. Integral is a bigger spacecraft and telescope than Newton. Newton was a cornerstone, a large mission, and integral was a medium mission. Doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it does when you recognize that actually what we did was use, ensure that we had a carryover and as far as possible, negotiable two-for-one purchasing, so to speak, in building the second larger spacecraft for less than the first one. Now, it does not work the way it does in the supermarket, or apparently now at your local car dealer, but um, it is still something to be remembered. That was one response. At the same time, we built Mars Express and Venus Express, deliberately using maximal uh, synergies between the programs. 
And Herschel and Planck was to follow that same thing. And in fact, the two spacecraft bits of Herschel and Planck, which you can see uh, in the, inside the fairing here, they're the golden bits at the bottom of each spacecraft, are remarkably similar. And that's, of course, part of the synergy. So the telescopes are radically different. And, of course, the spacecraft themselves cannot be identical because, as you notice, they've got very different requirements placed on them. But the idea was to go one beyond the integral Newton approach and try to do it better. I think the error, uh, if it was an error, I mean, I'm, it's arguable, was uh, t to not realize that actually we work with a flat budget. And how the budget is kept within, how would you spend it efficiently, is actually to have that budget broken up into multiple missions and then trade between them how you speed up or slow down things to keep your annual demand on budget flat. Now, it will change in the future simply because finally the agency is being dragged kicking and screaming into a different, different financial regime. But we were still, we've always worked up till now on spend all of the money a fixed amount every year. So every year I spend, you know, this year I will spend 443 million or whatever the number is to the last centime. And I think it's very important to recognize that this, that the logic of doing that doesn't allow you to spend, let's say, 60% or 70% of your disposable budget all on one, all in one shop so to speak, when both spacecraft have to be launched on the same day. That's the killer. Both spacecraft have, if you like, to meet critical milestones, in particular the launch, on the same day. And that, I think, is the, uh, you know, it's being clever after the fact, and I don't regret for a moment the procedure we followed. We had to do this. I don't know. It's uh, the other thing, we, we tried all sorts of experimental things. The SPC, the people who are the delegate body that looks after the program, uh, were very daring in, at the beginning of Herschel Planck. They realized they couldn't afford it, and so they tried their version of Cheaper, Better, Faster, of saying, we'll give you a target, recognizing, they said to the agency staff, recognizing that it's, below the amount of money you can identify in your plan and what you say it will cost. Now, it's not fashionable to do that. At the time it was, and I'm not sure it wasn't a good idea. I suspect it allowed this program to go ahead and probably to go ahead more efficiently than it would have perhaps in the new system where one has the opposite approach financially of saying... Um, no, you've got to absolutely swear that the cost of completion will be the cost of completion, which means you build in all sorts of risk uh, factors, which means, of course, the program then can't afford as much as it could afford if you were deliberately skating on thin ice. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not an advocate of either way round. I'm happy to live with either way. What I'm saying is one is not necessarily better than the other but you need to know which one you're playing at any particular time. And I certainly inherited a program where, which was uh, daring in one direction, now I have to dare in another. 
it's a very interesting in my sort of job. Okay, let's move forward. Um, really, the things I've just said, you should now forget, because I think I would prefer that we didn't uh, have too much of a debate about this until, at least until a few more years pass, and I'm firmly retired. Then we can really talk this way the whole time. For me, it's been the most fascinating experience, the business of managing this particular program. I inherited a structure uh, which I've taken from one era into a completely different era, and it's been, uh, most of the time, uh, consuming the majority of my budget. In that time, I've taken missions from start to finish, small missions like Smart One to the Moon and Venus Express. Neither of those were even on the drawing boards when I became director. Herschel Planck was already sitting there, this great <coughs> behemoth. I always felt waiting to roll over and crush me. Yeah, well, I'm still here. And I must say I'm going to be delighted to see this, this pair off the planet. I do love them, really. Okay, let me now take them apart. And from now on, once they're launched, really, I hope, unlike French and Saunders or Burgess and McLean, I hope they're going to separate in everybody's minds. They are two very different missions, two different kinds of astronomy. Take Herschel first. Um, it is looking at the picture of the, uh, I think that's the Orion Nebula, um, behind is where stars are made. It's a star-making factory. And one of the extraordinary things about being able to go into space is to really see the universe through eyes in the infrared and indeed also in the X-rays that are impossible on the ground. It was Herschel, um, I think in this audience probably regard Herschel as uh, uh, an Englishman. Um, I give you, you know, it's, uh, he, he was born in Germany, but of course he did all his great work in, in this country, and it was under the Hanoverians, so I'm not really sure what the distinction between Germany and England was. Uh, William, Sir William Herschel, who demonstrated the existence of infrared radiation. Here's a picture of his uh, great experiment. He has a prism splitting light into different wavelengths. You know that from Newton. And then he has a series of thermometers there. And he has a thermometer beyond where the visible light is falling. And it's split into the rainbow. And he determined experimentally with this, exp this very experiment that the temperature of the air at the bulb of the thermometer that was at the end of the uh, spectrum was heated up. In fact, substantially heated up. And that's because the sun is hotter in the infrared than it is even in the visible spectrum. And so... The peak of the sun's spectrum is in the infrared. He deduced, therefore, there had to be light that we couldn't see. Beyond red, with wavelengths longer than red. And uh, for those of you who have some feeling that astronomy is just 
for the curious, just to, you know, stimulate our minds and perhaps uh, tickle our imaginations as human beings. Try and imagine life today without infrared light. This is one of the many, many basic discoveries about the physical world that came out of astronomy, because Herschel was absolutely an astronomer. In fact, you see his telescope, which appears on the tie of the Royal Astronomical Society in the background there. Um, I'm absolutely clear. Sure, astronomy is for the curious, but I can tell you what it delivers is for everybody, and don't make any mistake about that. Here is that uh, image of the, uh, of the electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, really, light has wavelengths from uh, down to the scale of atoms out to longer than the scale of the Earth. Uh, we go there from the radio waves down to uh, gamma rays. And the world... And the universe is very different when you look at it in the infrared to looking at it in the visible. As you will have deduced from uh, Herschel's experiment, as I've just told you, the light that a typical body issues is something to do with temperature, something to do with how hot you are. You're radiating, in fact, all in the infrared. You can't avoid it. And that's probably one reason that our eyes don't function in the infrared would be very uncomfortable for us if, if they did. Uh, look at Orion, I think. Uh, certainly it's my favorite constellation, and I'm sure it's the favorite of some of you. It's the one that anybody can recognize, and you can see it in both northern and southern hemispheres. So it's, it seems to turn upside down when I go the other side of the equator. That's irritating. Um, the infrared, Orion shows up very differently. It looks like somebody's made a terrible mess of the hunter's cloak. Uh, you see, and those, of course, are the, the nebula, are, are the places where it's a, it's a nursery for stars. Stars are forming there. And indeed, the, the important aspect of uh, these telescopes is they look at the cold universe, and so they look at the beginnings of things. And that is because... As far as we can tell, the universe worked, works through a process of making galaxies, making stars, and making planets. And the great force that brings everything together operates on cold things, and it's called gravity. And then gravity somehow turns things, brings things together, and makes them hot. That then produces each of the objects I've talked about, the lumpiness of galaxies, the lumpiness of stars, and indeed also uh, planets. So Herschel is very much directed towards the creation of things. This tells you that in rather dull words, but I don't think uh, there can be anything more exciting really, to somebody trying to get a grand view or explain to the person in the street 
what astronomy is doing than explaining it's somehow trying to explain how we all came out of a big bang and we all turned up end up in rooms like this listening to lectures from people like me it's really a decoding exercise because Herschel also does something else it takes us from looking at the physical formation of the universe the coming together under gravity of things like galaxies and stars it also takes us into chemistry and it takes us into important chemistry concerning things associated with people like us that is how molecules more complicated molecules form things like water CO2 combinations of hydrogen oxygen nitrogen and carbon which somehow eventually gave rise to people like us they all have very distinctive signatures in the infrared light and so this is very much what Herschel is going to be looking at chemistry as well and then from chemistry of course you come to biology you can tell I'm a physicist speaking uh, so the special strengths it's a large telescope in fact the largest telescope we've yet put into space JWST will be a bigger telescope but it deploys it unfolds this is the largest monolithic mirror that will go into space uh, it's a enhanced spectral coverage as well as enhanced uh, diameter of telescope opening up a new window the cool universe um, cool in the sense of cold because <laughs> uh, pretty cool too but uh, and it's designed for wide area mapping and spectral line scans that's when the chemistry starts coming in and uh, it's a giant and I think this is the best picture I could find to illustrate how gigantic it is in this country still I think many of us are still bedded into feet and inches so 7.2 meters doesn't quite grasp the enormity that it does when I speak in France and, but look at those people those are real people they're not midgets and uh, it is one gigantic thing I mean this is a big spacecraft um, it's got three novel instruments uh, photometry in six different colors that is different wavelengths not literally colors we've got imaging spectroscopy so we can actually see where the chemistry is going on if you like and then we have this technique of high-resolution heterodyne spectroscopy uh, heterodyne is where you kind of do clever things to shift uh, from the, the wavelength you're detecting uh, you shift it to something that's more convenient to measure and it's used in a variety of uh, regimes and this is uh, there's a heterodyne spectrometer on this mission uh, this uh, breaks down the spacecraft shows you the telescope the sunshade of course the sunshade's absolutely fundamental things have to be cold where the detectors are we don't cool the telescope itself we can't uh, we have the service module down at the bottom that's the, what you would call the spacecraft in ordinary parlance and then this great big uh, thermos flask the blue thing there the cryo vacuum vessel in fact we should get a um, a uh, movie now there we go uh, this is just to give you a sense of the enormity of the engineering 
task. Uh, there you see the spacecraft, you've just seen it broken down. Um, but starting from the bottom, building up the telescope, the optical bench, which of course you require for the precise measurements that the telescope has to make. Uh, then the three instruments, which are the most exciting things to physicists and the least exciting things to look at. Um, PAX, which is built in, led by Germany. SPIRE, led by, uh, well, I'm not sure why I say Wales or England, or United Kingdom, I suppose, Britain. And then the, finally the uh, HiFi, which comes uh, is led by a team from the Netherlands. But in fact, these are not single national. These are massive uh, enterprises themselves building these instruments, and they are actually built by large multinational teams. Um, so the first uh, element of the cooling is 80 liters of, of helium-1, which is just cools down while we've got the spacecraft under the fairing. It'll be empty by the time we leave. Then we come to the real business, which is uh, helium-2, which is the rest of the dewar there, um, and that will feed cold helium at 1.7 K out into a complicated set of plumbing. Uh, and eventually that helium leaves into space. Um, so we have the, the instruments, of course, hidden and shielded and cooled. Then we have a series, like Russian dolls, a series of... Um, containers, uh, which are there for thermal reasons, with the plumbing doing the cooling inside. It really is a very grand refrigerator. Um, three thermal shields like Russian dolls uh, to keep uh, bring you down. And then, of course, then let's now step back and uh, we then have the passive shield, not actively cooled, and that uh, sits there looking into dark space because, of course, we're going to put that behind a sun shield. And, of course, this is the fundamental problem that the helium gas finally makes its way through a mass of uh, plumbing that is quite extraordinary to look at, um, eventually goes out into space, and that means there is a finite lifetime on this spacecraft. There is the mirror and the secondary mirror, and here is the service module, which does all the work. That's the brains behind the program. Okay, we now need, I would like to see the sun shield come on. I hope we haven't forgotten it, because it'll be a catastrophe if we don't get it. And there we come. There is the sun shield. That will permanently be facing the sun, of course, on the other side of it, you have uh, solar panels, which, of course, are the source of power. And this is a three-axis uh, stabilized. But, of course, the spacecraft itself will then tilt, but, of course, never looking at the sun or, indeed, the Earth, because the sun and the Earth are in the same direction uh, uh, for, this, uh, for this mission because of the deep space orbit. So there you are, an extraordinary thing. And there is that beautiful mirror. Okay, now let me give Planck some attention. Planck is uh, the smaller of the two. Uh, Herschel was 7.2 meters in height and 4.2 meters across. Planck is almost cuboid in overall dimension. It's 4 by 2 by 4 by 2. 
So it's uh, smaller, but as a medium mission, uh, mm, that's quite a medium size. It's a big mission by most standards. It's really the history of the universe that it's about. The universe began with a Big Bang, and we know that because of the thing that Planck is going to look at, the cosmic microwave background. There's a signal, uh, in fact, uh, a thermal signal with a temperature of around 2.7 Kelvin. And it is pretty well perfect thermal black body signal. Pervades space. It was discovered by two uh, researchers, Penzias and Wilson, somewhat to their surprise, uh, back in the early 60s on the ground where they just found this hiss that was omnipresent and omnidirectional. And it was realized that George Gamow, the uh, American astronomer, had pointed out that if there was a Big Bang, there would be a relic radiation left and its temperature would be a few degrees Kelvin now. As the universe expanded, the thermal, the temperature of this background radiation, the hisses left over from the Big Bang, would cool with the expanding universe, giving us... Uh, so this was a triumph for theorists in the sense that uh, it had been predicted and it was recognized after it had been seen and the, uh, you know, it, it really did change our universe completely to start thinking we did have to begin with a Big Bang. In the 50s, I know perfectly well, there was an enormous controversy over where really whether the universe was in steady state or a Big Bang. Penzias and Wilson's discovery of the cosmic microwave background changed the universe to one that had a history, a sense of purpose, if you like, a sense of evolution. It begins uh, with the Big Bang here. And um, then after the Big Bang, the first time that light is liberated, you've got the thing that is the cosmic microwave background. That's the thing we're after. Beyond that, you get galaxies forming, whereas the first light is, the universe is opaque until 300,000 years old. At one billion, it starts looking like the universe as we kind of imagine it, with galaxies. Uh, the earliest galaxies we've seen are about uh, from a, the first billion, uh, the end of the first billion years of the universe. After that, five billion years ago, the sun was formed, but I'm afraid that's nine point something billion years after the universe got itself started. So the sun is a Johnny-come-lately, but if you think that's bad, I have to say, really, the earth and the moon came even later, and if you want to know about human beings like us, we don't figure in that history. We're not there on the scale. The uh, tens of thousands of years that we can identify things like us, the blinking of an eyelid. So Planck takes the first thing we can see, the cosmic microwave background. That's its territory. The mission's named in, in favor of Max Planck, uh, who got the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1918, one of the great German scientists of all time. 
He started and he, he, he had a major, major effect on the 20th century. Again, if I say infrared pervades our lives, I'm afraid quantum physics pervades our lives. It even pervades the way we think because it had effects on 20th century philosophy and art as well as uh, what we could do with technology. Um, he recognized, he explained the spectrum of black body radiation, the spectrum of an ideal body uh, radiating all the radiation that it receives, re-radiating it. And uh, the cosmic microwave background, in fact, which we're going to explore, is the most perfect black body made in nature. Those who had the misfortune to have to do a physics degree will know that curve as the black body curve. And uh, the the 1% error bar is shown there for, um, from, a, I think, a balloon flight in Antarctica about uh, 20 years ago. Um, so that cosmic microwave radiation when first discovered, was uniform in all directions. It was uh, isotropic across the sky. Um, apart from an obvious shift that was associated with the real motion of the galaxy, but that's uh, very easily taken out. Um, but the, the background radiation was definitely um, isotropic. And indeed, I have to say, it's a strange thing, as somebody who really likes to say, we could do without theorists and experiment is really what matters. Um, another theoretical triumph and again one where the United Kingdom actually played a great role in the 80s. Very much the idea of looking at where the cosmic microwave background departed from uniformity was very much where experimental cosmology now starts but it started off with theorists and indeed I think uh, British theorists, along with American theorists, were very much in the front line in the early 70s and 80s. And they got it right. They said there must be structure in the microwave background at about one part in a million. It's easy to say, it's harder to do. And that's what Planck will do. And it will look around the sky uh, to map that radiation in all directions this shows, if you like, an idea of how it will do it, simply rotating as, if you like, it rotates around uh, the uh, sun, uh, thereby scanning the universe in a year. Um, that, uh, this is seeing the inside of a globe, if you like, projecting and then unfolding it and you'll see the kind of picture we expect to get. The uh, contrasts there are one part in a million at that level. And what's interesting is the structure of the dots, the way they're distributed across the sky, is fundamental to determining the early history. Because remember, we live in a universe that's continually expanding. And so as you look at the structure, you're also looking at history. It's going to provide all sky maps at an unprecedented angular resolution. I mean, a factor of 10 up on the two predecessors. And it, it, it's one of these things where you, you can say, well, you're just looking at a fundamental problem, the cosmic microwave background, but that's such an oversimplification. Um, we're actually going to have to question physics because really this is where physics began. 
we're going to look at the values of fundamental cosmological con constants, things that determine the nature of the physics that we use every day in the electronics industry, in, uh, indeed, in putting big rockets into space. Um, probably the thing that's the most embarrassing to uh, astro astrophysicists, if you really want to embarrass them, is the fact that the universe did not expand uniformly and something mysterious, which we give a name in the hope that nobody will notice how mysterious it is to us, because people expect us astronomers to know everything. Um, dark energy. There's this inflationary phase where the expansion appears to have uh, gone faster, and um, really we're going to explore that with the data we get. Um, needless to say, the data is not just those spots on the uh, survey picture that I showed. So this gives you some idea of the improvement in the resolution between the three missions. Kobe was the first, an American mission that uh, got Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, followed by Wilkinson Map um, about six, seven years ago, and then Planck is the next generation. Here shows the makeup of the spacecraft, um, really taken apart. I'm not going to take you through the full build-up of this. Obviously, it has a cryo system, not unlike Herschel, but actually much smaller, but still with an enormous array of piping. That makes me marvel, but I live in a country, France, where I have to say plumbing is a very uh, difficult art. They've yet to learn it. Uh, although we are... We, we in France are importing uh, poles. Uh, yeah. Things are going. It is improving, but uh, um, it's a bit hard. To, this actually is give you some idea of what really there's an enormous processing. One of the challenges here is to not just to get the data, it's actually what you do with it because it's a survey. So it's an enormous amount of data that somehow you have to mine. You have to mine for information. You have to structure how you approach it. And um, here we start off getting the data. We make it into the kind of maps you've seen. But then we look, we break it down across the sky according to the degree of variation across the sky. The very rapid changes against the very slow changes. And so we create a series of cuts across the sky using um, different scales of variation, different wavelengths of variation across the uh, celestial sphere. And that's what that packet picture down there is supposed to show. And that, of course, then reconstructs. But then you can take slices through that. And along here, you've got the wavelength on the celestial sphere uh, looking as a function of the, the strength of the radiation and the structure in the radiation. And believe it or not, those are the fingerprints. Those are the things we're looking for. They're going to tell us whether, for instance, the standard model, which is basically what we believe uh, outfits like CERN have delivered to us in our understanding of how the physical world works, is was the standard model functioning according to spec back at the beginning of time. 
This kind of question we will be asking using looking at these uh, structures on the sky. It's a terrific data processing task as well as a terrific technical task to make the measurements. I think I read somewhere that the sensitivity required to um, the, the planks uh, required to have to get the one part in the million structures and the resolution is equivalent to measuring uh, the presence of a rabbit on the surface of the moon. I've often wondered why anyone would be looking for a rabbit on the surface of the moon, but uh, there you go. Um, we're going to be able to do it, should you so need. Um, so here is a picture of the idea of uh, how things fit together, going the spacecraft out, deep space, this is Herschel and Planck, I think this is Herschel, by, this is Planck, going to a ground station in Australia, New Norcia or New Norcia, where the ground station is going to be, of course it's a 35 meter antenna, a big antenna, because it's, uh, this is out beyond the orbit of the moon. Data then goes to ESOC, to our mission control center, and that's just the data coming in. That's uh, job done to make sure we've got the spacecraft under control and we're getting the data down in the manner as it says, as it said it would on the packet. It's then passed the ESA Planck Science Office and then to the processing centers, uh, LFI and HFI are two parts of the instrument, two, the two big instruments on Planck. And then throughout there has to be an interaction with the scientific community. It gets even more complicated and the reason with Herschel, because Herschel with Planck, it's a survey. And so there's one, it's a very complex project, but there is one product, the outcome of the survey. Then you take apart the outcome of the survey in doing the science. Here, with Herschel, it's, it's more frightening, really, for a cryogenic mission because it's an observatory. Astronomers all over the world have already been writing proposals as to where they want the spacecraft to point. They've had to compete with each other, peer review as it's called, to get time on Herschel to do the fundamental science. And it's going to be pointed all over the sky. Of course, there are certain parts of the sky you can't look at at a particular time because it can't look at anything hot like the sun. Um, but... Uh, uh, we have always the clock ticking because, remember, that helium is running from day one uh, out into space. So the clock, the taxi meter is running from the very beginning. It's quite frightening with such a complex arrangement involving thousands of people around the globe. It's not just in Europe. It's involved in America. In fact, there is an ESA Herschel Science Center, of course, in, in Madrid or near Madrid, and uh, there is also a NASA Herschel Science Center. And in fact, NASA, if you look on the website, they treat Herschel as if it's a NASA spacecraft. Um, in the same way as uh, we in Europe uh, commonly uh, talk, as you know, with a, I mean, in, in the UK, for instance, SWIFT, we think of as a UK uh, spacecraft. It's uh, in the United States, it's thought of as an American spacecraft. Um, it's, uh, I think it's a sign of how significant we are to the United States, particularly in this area, 
that they give so much attention to it. And indeed, the NASA introduction at the International Year of Astronomy inauguration spent as much time on Herschel as it did on Hubble and JWST. Of course, Herschel is all the potential. It's not launched yet. Um, the, uh, of course, uh, we've then got the actual instruments, which are very centrally important here. And uh, there will be teams, I'm sure there's a team already in place in Cardiff, uh, where the Spire instrument is controlled from. Um, that said, that's not the end of the story. Herschel and Planck actually bring us to the great peak in operating spacecraft for ESA. We aren't going to have as many operating in five years' time, six years, seven years' time, simply because I know two of them won't be operating, and that's, I'm afraid, the newcomers, Herschel and Planck, because they're cryogenic. They will run out of cryogen. It means, at the moment, I'm having to spend much more than I would like if I were a reasonable businessman on operations to make sure we get the data back. And at the same time, we need to keep building spacecraft because, uh, really, a space agency is about delivering spacecraft as much as it is about delivering data from space. In fact, probably more so. We actually also, the launch of Herschel and Planck really marks a shift in balance of the program. It's a shift away from the planetary science we've had in the past few years, going to Venus, going to Mars, going to the Moon, going to Titan, whatever. Gaia comes next, deconstructing our galaxy, a very European mission with almost no American involvement at all because the technology is something that's uniquely European and the science, therefore, is uniquely European. It's, it's taking apart our galaxy. On the other hand, JWST, I don't think we could build because the telescopes to build these enormous telescopes are going to have on JWST and deploy them. Uh, only the United States has stepped up to the challenge of building large deployable structures in space. I can't imagine what they've been using them for, but uh, I understand they might have been doing it, practicing eventually to tell us how to do it with JWST. Certainly Lockheed Martin are um, the, um, very confident that that's... Of course, we're 15% partners in that, and indeed, partly because the U.S. is taking up so much of the technological challenge of building the telescope system, we've actually slipped in and we're building two out of three focal plane instruments, not entirely in Europe, there's American contributions, but very much led in Europe. And so it's a rather neat position we've taken on JWST. I'm rather proud of that. Um, and Lisa Pathfinder being built, uh, led from uh, Stevenage here in the UK, uh, is the precursor for a gravitational wave observatory Actually, we, even there, it's got fundamental science it will do, but it sounds terribly, terribly dull unless you happen to be a physicist. It will actually show that two free-falling masses follow geodesics. And is there anyone found that interesting? Well, you should, because if, it, if, if this is wrong, there is something wrong with Einstein's theory of uh, general relativity. 
And if there's something wrong with Einstein's theory of general relativity, you should worry about your GPS system. Because actually that's the everyday thing that relies on general relativistic corrections. So, um, uh, then we are, we're not getting out of planetary business. Bepi Colombo, we're building to go to Mercury. We're doing that entirely with the Japanese. Uh, one of the major changes in the way they approach things to, to work with us in the way that they've only worked with the US in the past. And of course, um, at the moment we're building ExoMars. And for me, one of the great challenges I'm hoping to get tied up this year is to put ex, is to put Europe firmly into a program of Mars exploration. That is to say, you know, Mars isn't just for Christmas, you know, like Mars Express was. Um, Mars is for life, and life in a variety of senses of ways. And I'm working with uh, the Americans and to perhaps less successfully at the moment with the Russians to try and bring together the idea of a global exploration of Mars. And certainly we've got, I think, we should within a month or two be able to announce we've got commitment from the Americans for Europe and uh, America to jointly explore Mars with the aim of bringing back um, material from Mars, uh, well, I would hope within 20 years. I mean, I think that's a reasonable target. Um, okay. We've got a lot coming beyond that in the future. Uh, really, a lot of excitement. By the end of this year, these names, I hope, will be close to household names. Really, ESA has to open up a new generation of spacecraft, and they are called Cosmic Vision 2015-2025, and the competition at the moment is really getting very, very, um, well, I would say very exciting, but you could say very nasty. Really, it's clear a couple of these missions are going to make the first slots, and therefore the others... I don't think they will def definitely die. They will have to go another round or two to come back. They cover a whole gamut of science from close to home, looking at the sun, through to um, looking indeed at the dark energy that uh, astrophysicists really regard as probably the greatest mystery of their current understanding of the universe. Maybe they should wait for Planck uh, to solve the problem. Then beyond that, we have grander missions. I think some of you may have seen the public announcements that with the Americans, we've decided Jupiter should be the next outer planet target with particular attention to the Galilean moons, uh, Ganymede and Europa. And at the same time, that, that mission, at least when it flies, will be determined by the state of play on our developments on gravitational wave observatory, LISA, or by a large X-ray observatory, IXO, which I hope is going to find a better name than IXO. Perhaps you'd like to write in with suggestions. So, April the 30th today, waiting for the launch. There are my babies, or your babies, because you paid for them as UK taxpayers, at least... Uh, 15, 18%, somewhere around that. They are worth paying for. They're going to change the universe we live in simply because after these missions, 
we will know much more. They are state-of-the-art. There isn't the slightest doubt that there is no comparison. Nobody else could have done it better. And it's something, once they're up, we're going to be, we should all, all of us, collectively, be very, very proud of. Thank you for listening. David, thank you so much for that fascinating uh, talk on, on these exciting missions. We still have another fortnight to wait for them to uh, actually get into orbit, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait. I, look, I'm not going to push it. No, no, no. I, uh, better, better, uh, I mean, when it's ready to go, it'll go. Uh, please. Right. Uh, Sounds reasonable. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have some time for questions. Uh, I'm sure there will be many. Uh, so we start with Reg in the front row. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us how far apart Herschel and Planck will be in L2. Uh, my own knowledge of L2 is very limited. Um, do we know much about L2? How, how uh, extensive the effect of L2 is and whether there's plenty of room or whether they might be drawn together? Uh, that's a very interesting question, and um, in fact, when I say they're at L2, as you've immediately spotted, they're not at L2, they're in an orbit around L2. In fact, L2, if you think in uh, terms of, uh, of gravitational potential, is a saddle point in, in gravity, and so it's unstable. You naturally tend to slide off the saddle you know, down the side of the saddle, it's only stable in, in one dimension. So you actually have to work to stay there. As a result, they're actively kept in an orbit going around the L2 position. And the L2 position is, people think of it as where the gravity of the, of the Earth cancels the gravity of the Sun. It's a little more subtle than that because you're in a, ro you're rotating around the Sun. But you can think of that to a first approximation. It's a point where if you like, the gravitational forces locally balance in a rotating frame. And, uh, uh, but in fact, they should be, uh, they should be very far apart by, by our standards. Typically, they'll be further apart than any two points on the Earth. So we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers. So the likelihood of them bumping into them, especially as you have to keep them where you're keeping them, uh, is zero. Um, uh, more interest, uh, a more interesting point, though, is uh, you might wonder, we've just coming through, uh, I guess, a full moon uh, around now, and one of the interesting points is you have to go past the moon, um, or you go past the moon's orbit. Of course, one, if you go at the wrong period of the month, you have to go past the moon. And in fact, that has a major impact in terms of potentially... Uh, you've got to think about what the moon does to the orbit of the spacecraft um, but on its way out, but also the upper stage of the rocket. Um, initially, when people were fussing about this, I thought, well, they, you know, we're trying to protect the moon. I mean, do they know who dumped Smart One onto <laughs> the moon not so long ago? But in fact, uh, of course, 
the point being that you get lunar perturbations that can make not Herschel or Planck, but the upper stage re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and that we don't want. We actually, as part of planetary protection, have to, or at least not me, the French government as the launch authority in, in Guyane, have to guarantee that there's a very, very, I don't know the precise number, one, one chance in a million probably, that uh, the, the, um, a piece of the upper stage will eventually end up on dry land uh, on, the, on, on this planet. So there are some interesting things about going out to deep space. There are things you haven't thought of. And the moon itself is always there, and it will perturb the orbits, um, but in a totally controllable way. Let's go uh, three rows back, or four rows back, yes. Um, could you say what the um, shortest wavelength in the infrared um, that Herschel will cover, and were there any special manufacturing problems for the mirror as a result? <laughs> yes, well, the mirror was a... The mirror's, uh, you know, silicon carbide, and it is a technology that's been invested on a great deal in in France. In fact, it's a, there's only one capacity to do it with the company in in France. Uh, the investment is obviously not for pure astronomy. Um, I, you know, I don't, I can't give you the wavelength off the top of my head. That's the, maybe David, you can. No, good question. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's clearly um, uh, sub-millimeter. But I don't uh, okay, know. you're not going down into the uh, to the near infrared then, because of course the accuracy no. of the mirror would have to be about a tenth of the wavelength. Oh, sorry, I'm going the wrong way in my head. Actually, no, you you, you are going into it is far infrared though. It's. Uh, you're not going down into the near infrared? No. Ah, okay. Any more? Oh, yeah, let's have one on this side here. Uh, David, you um, quite rightly said that uh, the mirror, the 3.5 metre mirror on Herschel is a work of art. It's a beautiful to look at when I saw it in Estate, very exciting to see it. Because it's a huge jump up from the 2.4 Hubble. But obviously, sadly, as, as you say, four years' time, um, Herschel will die. And I suppose everyone's thoughts go to Hubble, um, the way it's going to be reserviced shortly by another shuttle mission. Um, but I guess um, L2 is a long way away, and uh, there's no way that even an Orion spacecraft can ever uh, service. But, but I suppose my question, and the economics I, I don't stack up, it's going to be cheaper to obviously build a new Herschel. But my, I guess my question is, how about um, the forthcoming moon base, assuming ESA and NASA one day joined together, maybe as a precursor to Project Aurora, could one put a Herschel-type telescope in the shadow of a deep crater and actually operate at one of the poles, or both poles, of the son of Herschel? Short answer, yes. Um, A longer answer, because I think it's an interesting point. When Hubble was um, being brooted around, uh, you're talking in the 80s, in fact, probably even before the 80s, 70s. Um, one of the virtues of Hubble was the servicing aspect, and it's true. Uh, we would not have Hubble now if we hadn't had the capacity to service it. Um, 
However, partly it's because we have the capacity to service it that it makes sense to service it. Um, economically, uh, when we were discussing way back uh, building parts of Hubble, you know, bits were built in, uh, indeed in the United Kingdom and in, in Europe, uh, what would one do? You know, what was the most economical way to refurbish? And in fact, uh, it's often most economical to build another on the ground and to launch that when you need it. And of course, that is a philosophy used for meteorological satellites and also for, for communication satellites. And it's not an entirely foolish view. Um, ASRAEL 2, uh, it certainly is one of the targets mentioned for deep space human uh, activities. It's, it's, it is thought about. And I think for astronomy in space, I think I would prefer to think of servicing deep space observatories at L2 or in near, in, rather than on the surface of the moon partly because the surface of the moon is um, rather dusty. Um, and I've got to say, mirrors don't like dust. And I don't like dust as a result. So uh, for me, um, I, I actually think, and I think every time one looks at astronomy with humans, uh, I think you get the issue of uh, access to L2, even putting some sort of space station in L2. I mean, I'm not talking tomorrow, but uh, for me that would be a rational way to go if you want to do that. I have to say, um, I can think of other exciting things for humans to do on the moon, uh, you know, before you get around to putting a big, big visible uh, range, you know, uh, um, or infrared telescopes on the moon. I think I can think of lots of other things I would do before that. Well, David, I, I think uh, you, you've given us an, an ex a very exciting uh, run through the uh, the science that we're looking forward to. I guess people are hoping... When we originally scheduled this talk, I guess we had in mind that Herschel and Planck would probably be in orbit at this point. And so you can see the... Uh, I, you can probably pick up some of the frustration that people here feel, I know as you yourself said, you, you feel frustrated that uh, it, uh, it should have been in orbit perhaps last year. Uh, let's hope in a month's time um, we'll be uh, seeing... Look, I think you can do better than hope. We've got a whole bunch of, <laughs> got a whole bunch of people here. You all know how to cross your fingers. <laughs> and, and some of you probably can pray. Can I have all efforts put? <laughs> Well, that's, a, that's an interesting note to, to end this, uh, this, this talk on. But uh, I, I've certainly found it absolutely fascinating, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, two weeks' time and what we see thereafter. So, David, can I just offer you a very small token of the Society's thanks oh. to you for coming to give us this talk. Well, thank you very uh, much. And, and uh, answer our questions. Okay. And good luck in the fortnight's time. Can I ask people to thank David in the usual way?